"'My queen,' he said at last, "'you crafted those oaths very carefully, didn't you?' Indeed, Atolia had defined the terms of her loyalty, as well as those of Edith and Sunis, with precision. "'I swore my obedience to you and to your future children, not to your wife,' Edith confirmed. "'And I the same,' said the king of Sunis, sounding very serious when he'd been so boyish a moment before. "'You are the linchpin of this treaty, Jen,' said Edith. "'You cannot be risked in battle.' "'How to trick your husband into staying alive another year by Atolia. Step one, enlist seven hundred of your closest friends to watch him. Step two, tie him inextricably to the fate of this country and everyone in it.'" <laughs> it's like someone getting tricked by the user agreements of all those Apple contracts. I just want the iPhone, you know? <laughs> I didn't read it. I just trusted that Apple has my best interests at heart. Just like my wife. <laughs> Welcome back, horses with the fighting spirit of an apricot. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. As soon as I look at my calendar, I will know that it is October 24th. And today we are discussing Chapter 3 of Return of the Thief. This The horse is the main character of this chapter. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Jen gets a lot of presents. This chapter sort of establishes that Ferris is going to overhear stuff. Mm-hmm. That this is how it's going to be. And it's fun because pretty much everything that happens in this chapter is a reference to a previous thing that Ferris doesn't understand, but we, the readers, do. Mm-hmm. And we already start to see that... Uh... He's his attention to detail is bringing up a new type of information that the other books haven't always necessarily given us. Mm-hmm. Like we get a lot more like gestures and like just fun small details. Like when, like I don't know, the attendants were like nonplussed about how to get Jen out of bed, and it, uh, the narration says it lay me and raised his shoulders and a shrug all the way up to his ears. Like, <laughs> and the dialogue is. It's really funny. It's really charming. Mm-hmm. Everybody is super likable or really entertainingly unlikable. Oh, and there's something different about the dialogue uh, in this. In I think it's throughout the whole book, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, but it starts in this chapter. I wanted to ask you about it. Um, in previous books, when the monarchs are referred to by other people... Um, I feel like almost all the time they're referred to by their country titles. Like, even if it's Jen and Irene talking about Helen, they'll call her Edith when they talk to each other about her. Mm. But in this book, it's so much more of them using the person's name. Which, in this chapter, it was, um, like, the first instance was Jen and Irene surrounded by 50 attendants or having breakfast or whatever in Atolia's apartments talking about oh, the ceremony and how all the barons are super angry and Jen refers to Edith as Helen, saying, like, oh, they can't dethrone Helen for this myriad of reasons and whatever, my family would kill them. Uh, (laughs) So I just was kind of wondering what you think about that. Like, we see it also when uh, Jen and Melhoret are talking. Jen refers to Sophos as Sophos, using his actual name instead of Soonest. 
Yeah, to yeah. And mail her, that's which such is a great weird conversation. That, it, oh, that idiot great. Sofo shot. <laughs> yeah, you're not really mad that Sofo's winged the ambassador. <laughs> you're right. And then there's a conversation between Helen and Jen where Helen refers to Sophos as Sunus, and then like four lines down calls him Sophos. Yeah, and then also Jen talking to Edis in that same conversation calls her Edith. She's, she asks, like, oh, are you malingering? And he says, I am not Edith. She says, uh, it says, alternatively, said Edith, he says you are malingering. You don't dare to stand trial. I am not Edith, said the king flatly. Nonetheless, no, not nonetheless. You are Edith. Go smack him. And I think, like, he's trying to, even before he says you are Edith, he's trying to emphasize to her at that point in the mm-hmm. conversation that she is Edith. Yeah. So that that's one answer that makes sense. But then I don't know what the deal is with mentioning Sophos to Melharet. Yeah. You know, we're not on friendly enough terms with Melharet to use first names around him. In his conversation with Melharet, there is a tone of, like, we're not talking nonsense right now. We're, yeah. we're dispensing with formality. Like... 10,000 Mede soldiers landed in Sunus, and you are pretending to be outraged because Sophos winged his ambassador? I have an idea. I won't say anything about the invasion of a country under my protection, and you won't ever raise the issue of that idiot Sophos shot again. Like, it's okay. Five minute, no bullshit truce. <laughs> Go. Or is it is it just a, meant to be a mark of on what good terms Jen and Sophos are? That he's using Sophos' first name, you know? Yeah. Saying, you know, this is my buddy who's also under my protection. I don't have to use his his last name in the conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Is, does anyone listening have any have any other theories about this? Anything yeah, please else to add? You know, I'm just thinking, you know, we don't even know anyone's real names until book two. And then it's like a big drop when they get into the conversation. This is it's definitely, like, it's by far the most intimate book. Yeah. Uh-huh. I think in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And this is just one of those manifestations. I sound so pretentious. <laughs> Let's use a different word. Just one of the ways that that comes out. You know what I mean. No, that's, that's <laughs> you use as many multisyllabic words as you like. I think that somewhat related to that is the way that this book makes so many references to things that we know about the characters from other books like this mm. i mean even so many small things like this chapter uh has references to the fact that jen is afraid of horses it has references to the whole thing about stealing melharet's statue we are so familiar with the characters at this point that we can understand those things without being told and that's like an intimate feeling ferris first of all has to have read the other in-universe means these stuff or be familiar enough with the people you know this whole thing is full of stuff that he can only have learned from the people involved yeah and like i mean he's recounting what he saw at that moment which is that jen uh was annoyed that atolia gave him a horse and we know that jen doesn't like horses and we know why he doesn't like horses from prior context and i'm sure that by the time ferris is writing that he also does Mm -hmm. but he does not like the the in-universe narrator 
also does not provide that information to the reader. And so I think that we can also conclude that it is assumed in the universe that the reader is is familiar. And I don't want to go through the whole chapter of being like, I love this dialogue, I love this dialogue, I love this dialogue, because I just love all the dialogue. Oh, something that's um that I wanted to ask you your thoughts on. At this point, King of Atolia has already happened. Um, Eugenides has been like a god revealed before his attendance. He's he's proven himself to the Atolian court at large. Um, and so he has a different sort of relationship with his attendants in general. But there's this bit where um, Ferris is very impressed with kind of the opulence of the king's wardrobe. He saw me staring and smiled for the first time. And Medander uh, says, you've impressed the imbecile, your majesty. Medander said it as if it were a joke, but there was an edge I didn't miss. It was not just me that Medander was mocking. Uh, and then Hilarion glares at Medander for it, but he, he shrugs it off. And so he... There's, um, there's leftovers of this kind of antagonistic relationship. Yeah, with, like, a few of the attendants specifically. Yeah. Why like. is that persisting with those particular attendants? Yeah, I think maybe the next chapter or somewhere else in here, I think Ferris goes into this a little bit. I think Ferris says something like, you know, like, he goes through, like, oh, like, half of the attendants were on good terms or whatever, and then, like, these three troublemakers thought that they had already burned their bridges mm. so like couldn't go backwards and stop being asses <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but you know i mean that still leaves the question really of like because like is it is it just stubbornness or is it like is somebody still loyal to Sousa's or... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, strange as it is to say, maybe they just don't like him maybe as a person. Just, excuse me? <laughs> How could anyone not like my boy? How dare they? <laughs> he did trick them pretty good, though. Yeah, well, that's supposed that's to make there. people fall in love with him. It's always worked for him before. <laughs> Who is the Baron... That is trying so hard to impress him. Yeah. Ferris is like, oh, he must have been trying to make up for some lost offense. Like, oh, there were a lot of people trying to do that. I was yeah. Like, what I, is this talking about? I've never been able to remember who it was. Oh, well. Ooh, I, don't, I don't know if we find out. Yeah. I want to think that, that we can make an educated guess about that, but I really have no idea. Could have been. Remember that guy who, like, was committing tax evasion with the wheat? Anacritus. Mm, maybe, maybe it's, it's the wheat tax evasion guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we get that nice reassuring line. I saw the pomegranate in use many times over the years. Yeah. Yeah, the ambiguously gay wheat tax evasion guy. I forget his name. Anacritus. I believe you. Maybe. Oh, and in this chapter we get the hint. Uh, Ferris hears uh the oracle's voice has a resonance that made my heart thrum in my chest so the hint that you can hear the goddess and the voice just like edith does at the end of conspiracy yeah remember the oracle is blessing the troops and she hears the goddess's voice in the oracle's voice and so ferris is maybe a little bit close to the gods as well 
Yeah, they go on that whole field trip up to yeah. the temple, which is not actually a temple, much to Ferris's disappointment. <laughs> it's just a foundation and like a little room. And they don't even kill a bull, all that. And they don't even get to eat. Another tiny, tiny question about a detail that doesn't really matter. Remember in The Thief, Sophos was asking, like, oh, do people really believe that in Edis? And Jen was like, no, Sophos, they just want an excuse to eat a bull. Yeah. Um, and Ferris is saying in this chapter, like, oh, in the olden days, they would have eaten a bull. Yeah. Were the olden right. days six years ago? Or is this... <laughs> things have changed was, pretty rapidly. Yeah. Well, was it different in Edis? Yeah, maybe things yeah. are different in Atolia than Edis. I mean, that could be something that, that Atolians look down on Edisians for. Like, yeah. what, you guys still do animal <laughs> sacrifice? Cringe. <laughs> oh, and another religion question. Um, Elida... The goddess of gentle rain is in a mosaic in the room that they go into that Pharisees with, like, the storm god and her other siblings and whatever. Do you think Elida is... I've been kind of assuming this whole time she has to be one of the Edesian gods. But then, does that mean that this mosaic of an Edesian god in the Aetolian palace is, like, pre-invaders? Or is it very when... new? Because they've kind of had a merge. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. It could be new since Jen got here. She's the earrings, right? Do you think that she's the goddess that Jen surprises everybody by praying very earnestly to on their way back down from the... That was what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. And we also, we had never found out, we had never known before that uh, prayer involves frustration, I guess, too, which is interesting. Yeah. Oh, another thing about the animal sacrifice. At the end of King of Atolia... Um, Queen of Atolia. At the end of Queen of Atolia, right. At the end of Queen of Atolia, Jen sacrifices a goat. Yeah. Maybe this is a question I should be asking at the end of the book, and then we'll just recall this sentence then, but it's coming to me now. Edith says to Jen that, uh, I swore my obedience to you and your future children, not your wife. Mm-hmm. But then, at the end of the book, they're like, okay, let's have you three go home and write a treaty about who gets to be the next High King because it can't just automatically go to an Atolian. Yeah, I think they, they change it. Okay. Because they decide it wasn't a good idea. Yeah. So, this oath thing, just, I'm just, clarify this for me. This whole oath thing, the whole thing of the three of them taking an oath to the High King and everyone else here also, this entire ceremony, the whole day, all of this... Was the point of all of this making Jen the linchpin just to make sure he couldn't go into battle? Was that the deal? Um, I think so. Okay, like, that's I think what I thought. That Atolia, like, it's really interesting that something that ostensibly takes power away from her yeah. is what she wants because she doesn't want him to go die. Because otherwise, like, there were always going to be oaths, but they could have been... To both of them. To both of them. Yeah. Or to a generic ruler of Atolia, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, um... He's both literally, legally made into the linchpin for it, but he also is, like, it's the force of his personality that is making all of this happen. But it's interesting that, you know, at, at this one particular point in the novel... Like, they're saying, oh, you're the linchpin of this treaty. Like, without you, it's going to fall apart. But, like, it really, it everybody seems like a bad else idea. hates him. Yeah. He, nobody else except for these three people <laughs> wants him in on this at all. <laughs> so he's, like, 
by that reckoning, he's like the anti-linchpin. Yeah. But but no. But yeah, if it's, hmm. it's now a bad idea to assassinate him unless you want the whole thing to fall apart. Which, you know, maybe some people do. <laughs> and we get a mention of Jen's sisters again because Megan loves us. No one wants to cross them. Tell me! Aunt? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can finish that sentence. Why? Because they're badass and scary, just like the rest of the family. I want the spinoff. And they really, um, they give this power to Jen so cheerfully. Especially Sophos. Yeah. He, he, like, kneels before Jen and puts his hand on Jen's foot and, and gives him this, like, easy boyish smile. And it's a little bit scary. To me. Yeah. And it says, like, oh, Atolia went first, standing proudly before her people. Like, you know, she's glad to do this. Probably her idea. And, like, and it's... then Atolia goes to sit in an equally ornate chair as Jen's next to Jen. And so, like... But it's silver. It's still not the same as his. Yeah. It's and like lesser, in a to way. To what extent is this a formality... And right. to what extent does Jen really hold dominance over these other yeah. people? Which, you know, I mean, we do see later that Jen is equally freaked out by these questions, but that doesn't make me feel any better right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a really important turning point in this book is Jen kneeling before Atolia. Mm. And, like, so these, like, all of these relationships involve kind of a, um, like, a never-ending exchange of power. It it feels like making Jen, like, officially annex makes it all feel more unstable to me. Yeah. Why is that? I'm just thinking about later on, I don't know, how it kind of, like, it's not exactly paying the other rulers against him because they all love each other so much, but if not for that, it would have stirred ill will or something else to that effect. And you just remembering that quote from, I think, like, King of Tulia or something, or Ornans, just thinking, like, oh, he's... Jen has calmed down recently, but he was a hothead for many years before that. Yeah. <laughs> it's an act of, um, of unbelievable trust. Mm. Like, you're gonna... Okay. It's... He's an unfailingly entertaining protagonist. But... Would I want him in charge of me? <laughs> <laughs> Would I want him to be the boss of me? I don't know. Pass. I don't think so. Yeah, uh, I get why everyone's barons are like, this is a, let's not, can, can he not, I don't want to do this. And like, even if you know him really well and love him, he will feed you to the wolves. That's right. the whole point. But it, it really, it's like, I think Sophos, like the type of trust that he puts in Jen is that if he feeds me to the wolves, it will be in everyone's best interest. Right. And like... It's interesting that it seems like in this chapter, I feel like it's never explicitly stated that, like, you know, Edith says, like, oh, I have to go home and explain myself and hope that everyone there is going to forgive me. Uh, but it's never explicitly stated, like, okay, we're doing this to stop the Medes as we've been doing everything. Mm. So it's kind of like the feel of this chapter to me. I mean, like, we know the reasons behind it. It's just kind of like, we have good reasons behind it, but we're not necessarily getting other people believing in them just yet. It's unclear the extent to which 
people as a whole take seriously the threat of the meats? Yeah, I think we get more on that later, that, like, people don't want to believe they're as much of a threat as they are. I want to read the Epic of Omarak. Yeah. Why don't we get that? Come on! Story time! <laughs> Story opportunity! I was actually so reassured by Jen's conversation with Edis. Yeah, she says, you are sick, aren't you, Jen? And he says, yes. Why? People do get sick, you know. But I thought you were getting better. I do not know why I am a magnet for every contagion. So just this, people do get sick, you know? I'm like, all right, this could just be chronic illness. Like, (laughs) he could be fine. I think that um, there are a lot of instances in this book of something that you expect to go one way because you are used to it going that way in stories and then it uh it doesn't fall into the trap yeah i love that and i think megan is just a master of doing that yeah in all sorts of different ways we've seen that you know everywhere but she never does it in a way that feels cheap you know sometimes the a story will do something that's like just it's opposite day you know like yeah it's not earned. And while all this is happening, so much goes on in this chapter. While all this is happening, we learn a bunch more about Ferris as well. Um, he is, uh, he's not enjoying himself at this long, uh, this very long walk and then a ceremony. Like, hello, would you like to go up a really high hill and then go all the way back down again and then have to stand in the sun for a really long time? Uh, and he, um, he kind of, like, he, he's looking at the paving stones and imagining that the ripples in them are waves on an ocean. And later he's eating the oranges and he's counting all of the sections and putting them in patterns. And so you, we get a sense of the ways in which he uh, amuses himself. Mm-hmm. And this is while he's noticing all this stuff and, like, logging it. And the only person who kind of, like, sees him even a little bit is Jen. Yeah, I was going to bring that up, too, that Jen is keeping track of Ferris. He knows exactly when Ferris goes under the couch, you know, in a room with 50 other people or whatever. He orders lamb for himself that he doesn't intend to eat Mm -hmm. so that he can say, oh, I've changed my mind. Give it to Ferris. Yeah. You know, maybe I was a little bit unfair last episode. (laughs) Be like, well, he's just giving this kid to the wolves, but you know, he is taking care of him. And I mean, he, he 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 took care of Ferris when Ferris was ill. Yeah, and he's had Ferris move his blankets and whatever in there so no one can kill him <laughs> overnight. Like, that's a, a loving common gesture. Danger. Oh, you know, just the trials of adolescence. <laughs> you know, we've been we've been talking about the. The way that the characters in these stories are kind of thrust into adulthood. And I was thinking about it after. And I was thinking about how in books that are marketed to children and young adults, uh, especially adventure stories, you will often see kids and teens doing things that would be inappropriate for kids and teens to do in real life. Like fighting in wars. Because yeah. it's a fantasy. Yeah. That's what you want to imagine doing when you're, uh, when you're a kid. But... These books stand out because the characters have such adult concerns. Mm -hmm. Like, 
Jen is married by book two. He, his wife has a miscarriage. His relationship with his father, the issues that they have is very much the issues of an adult child and a parent. Like, they're not, yeah. they're, they're, they're just not adolescent concerns. Yeah. And I, I remember you, you mentioning at the end of The Thief, we have this moment of Sophos being a vulnerable child saying, I miss Pole. Pole is dead. And I am the one who now has to tell his wife and children that he's dead. Yeah. That that is the responsibility of an adult suddenly thrust on Sophos at age, you know, 10 or however old he was. I feel like it's, um, that is something about these books that is old fashioned, like that calls back to a time of, of not a great distinction between, uh, adventure stories for young people and adults. Eagle of the Ninth is not about kids. But it was read by kids. Mm-hmm. And Ferris is a, like, he is a child and he does get to have a child's issues in ways that I think no other character does. Mm-hmm. Like, relatively speaking. Yeah. Like, he gets to be in, not really school, but... <laughs> <laughs> Which I guess in in The Thief... Uh, Sophos and Ambiades are being tutored, and so they they have a very like they're they're students and they're young. But uh, Ferris is definitely younger. Yeah, I mean, I think that Ferris is what like I imagine him as being, like between ten and twelve. Yeah, I was I kind of thought like eight and ten maybe, mm. but you know like. I've had no interaction with children since I was a child, so like, how, do, how do I know how to judge you? <laughs> what is a child? <laughs> and this is also, this is fair, thinking back on this time as an adult. Mm-hmm. Other in-universe narratives are written very soon after the events, yeah, like true. right after. I got home from my field trip, here's what I did on my summer vacation. Yeah. But this is, I am an adult and I'm looking back on these extraordinary events of my childhood. Mm-hmm. A whole different vibe. Which makes it all the more audacious that this is the narrator trying to convince us his dialogue is, like, accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, ten years later. Yep, I heard it. Well, and we see Ferris narrates that uh, Edith sits in the same way as Jen does. Like, she slumps down in her chair and crosses her ankles. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Ooh. Ferris thinks he's going to be killed for giving Jen the flu. Yes. Thank you for listening. Send us your comments, questions, thoughts. Chime in at atollianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available.